Scientific America announces that doctors may have solved one of the world's greatest problems. No, it's not the eradication of hunger or the cure for cancer. No, doctors now believe they may be close to solving how men can get pregnant. What can we do about the madness of our world? We'll look at Constantine Kissin, who demolishes the opposition with facts on an Oxford Union debate. And then we'll look at a chilling story from a man at the March for Life. And then finally, we'll see that a new campaign to try to reintroduce people to Jesus is actually doing the opposite. We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Our show today is sponsored by our friends over at Anchor. Now, if you're like me, and though I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy, I would tell you that one of the things that we should have in common is that we realize that there is institutional corruption today that we need to do something about. And the best way to do that is to start your own institutions, start your own business, create a parallel economy. And the way to do that is by going to anchor.biz. That's A-N-C-U-R dot B-I-Z, where my friends over there can help you with payroll solutions, accounting, bookkeeping, hiring, staffing, so much more. But to see all that they can do to put legs underneath the vision that you have to start a business, you need to go see our friends over at Anchor. That's A-N-C-U-R dot B-I-Z. And when you go there, don't forget to tell them that Indie Thinker sent you. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Today, we're going to do what we do every day and try to talk about the intersection of faith and culture and why it matters with logical, coherent, rational arguments and facts. Now, we're coming upon the 30-year anniversary, a real milestone for us here in America, uh, of one of the greatest movies of all time. In 1994, the golden age of cinema was upon us. The movie Junior came out with Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it was a reminder to us of how special women are because it was an attempt to mock the feminist notion that women can do everything men can do and men can do everything a woman can do. So they had Arnold Schwarzenegger play a man who was expecting a baby with the use of an experimental drug. Hilarity ensued, like only can be found in buddy comedy movies from the 90s, and the movie went on into that cold night to much criticism, with reviews like this one from Rotten Tomatoes. Quote, with an abundance of talent behind and in front of the camera, Junior doesn't quite deliver enough laughs, and one of my favorite uh, responses to this movie was from comedian and former Mystery Science Theater 3000 host Michael J. Nelson, who named the film the second worst comedy ever made. Now, the gist of the movie, like we so rarely see uh, these days, reminds us how special women are and how rare it is that they can do some of the things they can do, like create a baby with their body and then feed a baby with their body. So this very ridiculous and not that funny movie took on that age-old feminist saying that a woman can do everything a man can do and humiliated that saying. And it only took a horrible movie to do it because back then, common sense was more common. In the present, lunacy has overtaken and we're all the worse because of it, and especially women. So now, women's sports are being demolished by people like Leah Thomas, and chivalry is seen as patronizing and patriarchal and demeaning to women. And most recently, according to the prestigious and always interesting Scientific America, they wrote that men can now potentially get pregnant. And their article says this, when Mats Brandstrom first 
dreamed of performing uterus transplants. He envisioned helping women who were born without the organ or had to have hysterectomies. He wanted to give them a chance at birthing their own children, especially in countries like his native Sweden where surrogacy is legal. He auditioned the procedure in female rodents, then he moved on to sheep and baboons. Two years ago, in a medical first, he managed to help a human woman transplant patient deliver her own baby boy and other patients. Four more babies followed. But his monumental feats have had an unintended effect, igniting hopes that some trans women, those whose birth certificates read male but who identify as female, that they might one day carry their own children. So I love that, first of all, description of trans women as those whose birth certificates read male but identify as female. So there is another word for that. Those who were born men and pretend to be women, but push all of that aside. So apparently through the transplanting of a womb and uterus and other female parts inside of a man, it's believed that we might actually be able to see the monumental feat the, the dream of all dreams, the dream that Martin Luther King Jr. could only dream about, come to fruition, that a man could give birth to a baby. So here's just a couple of thoughts, perhaps, to walk away from this article with and the potential for men being able to transplant woman parts inside of their bodies so that they can pretend to be women and have babies. So the first thing is this. Men were not given the ability to have kids, have these scientists, have the people writing this article even ever stopped for one second to ask if we should explore sticking our middle finger right in creation's face like this? So the question is not can we do it, but should we do it? Secondly, I'm continually unsurprised that, that the Hippocratic Oath just falls to the wayside with these leftists. It's perfectly inhumane to experiment on babies and humans in this way, but I guess morality and the Hippocratic Oath deserve to go the way of truth in a postmodern society. And here's the third thing. In the midst of these Frankenstein-esque experiments, we're, we're told that they might be successful, but no one in scientific America or apparently any of these doctors have stopped to ask the simple question about the role of a mother and, and a father. So at a time where progressives buck societal norms and rejoice in the empowerment that comes from revel against, reveling against the patriarchy and sticking it to the man, we've all failed to recognize that a man actually has a role in a child's life, that a child needs a mom and it needs a dad. It needs a woman and a man, not a man pretending to be a woman. Now, when society no longer thinks about the external threats of their actions so that they can pursue freedom, they have neglected a fundamental principle. John Stuart Mill called this the, the harm principle. In, in it, he believes that freedom should extend as far as it can, as long as it does not harm anyone else. Now, this is even further that I think I would go, um, because I think harm is something that needs to be defined. For instance, we can look at pornography and we can tell that it harms women and it harms people's perception of women and what sex is. So, so I think the harm principle has some flaws deeply into it, but here the lowest rung of the ladder, harm, is not even a concern for any of these people wishing to put a womb inside of a man. This surgery doesn't even approach the ladder. It denies the fact that girls are four times more likely to get pregnant as a teen and drop out, and high school boys are way more likely to do drugs and commit heinous acts of crimes without a father in their home. 
In other words, it doesn't think at all about what the implications of what they want to do actually is. And it leaves us with this reminder that we are living in the age of lunacy, an age of madness, an age where the operating philosophy of the day may be postmodernism, but the the praxis of the day is cut off your nose to spite your face. Progress at all costs, even if it means walking backwards. With that kind of suicidal tendency, with that kind of lunacy mainstreamed in society today, it begs the question, who will stand in its way? What will stop this trend? We can go the way of thinking that it will stop on its own, or we can take responsibility and believe that we have a role in stopping it. So given the danger that this procedure can cause the unborn baby, the patient, and even a future child who won't have a mother or a father, it is incumbent upon us as Christians or just people of conscience to take a stand, to not idly sit back in silence while this godless injustice takes place. We must act. And so the question is, what can we do? And that's what we're going to talk about in our top stories today. So in Christianity Not Today, we talk about some things that are going on today that are not so Christian and try to provide a Christian prescription to those things. Before we jump into some of those stories, I want to kind of throw back to what I was talking about this past Tuesday with the dispute that's been going on with the Daily Wire and Stephen Crowder of Louder with Crowder, and just say that uh, I've tried to consume as much as I can about this subject because I really think it's interesting from a Christian perspective, frankly. It's interesting from a relational perspective, how we deal with, you know, issues in business and relationships on the side and and all of that, And, and I think there's some moral implications as well, which always get the wheels turning for me, but I do just have to say one thing. I was watching the Tim Cast podcast with Tim Pool, and I saw his kind of spot with Candace Owens talking about the Daily Wire, and then I saw his spot with Steven Crowder talking about his kind of side of the story. And um, I have to tell you, I, I walked away kind of frustrated with uh, with the Steven Crowder episode, but I still continue to think that Steven Crowder has his heart and mind in the right place for the most part, as far as I can tell. I just think that he perhaps is a little bit misguided. And, and here's one of the reasons why. When I was watching the TimCast podcast with Steven Crowder and they were talking about the fact that conservatives should not defend uh, big tech policies of censorship, that you can't penalize, you know, conservative commentators the same way that the social media and big tech companies penalize people. So in other words, if YouTube uh, demonetizes a channel, we shouldn't retroactively also follow suit and penalize that channel financially, uh, because ultimately, in Stephen's mind, the role of conservatism is not to be like corporate America. It's to reject the man. It's to reject the corporate model. And it's to do our own thing and go our own way and stick it to the man kind of thing. And I mean, he's talking to to Tim Pool, who I think is like this perpetual skater who constantly wants to like, um, what do they call that thing, rail slide or whatever on a skateboard uh, to make the police mad at him. Uh, In other words, this kind of anti-establishment rebellious attitude that is frankly found in a lot of young people. But I found it ironic that as I was watching this, 
um, on YouTube, the Tim Cast podcast, as they were talking about YouTube and sticking it to the man, that every 15 minutes I was watching some type of ad, mostly from Wayfair. And if I hear that song one more time, I will throw my very expensive computer. Um, I, I saw every 15 minutes an ad from YouTube coming at me. So while they're railing against commercialism, they are absolutely in the system and using it. And the point is, is this, is that sometimes we have to use the present system until something else better comes in its place. And I know a lot of people would say, well, Reed, if we keep doing that, then we'll never change anything. Well, all I can tell you is that Steven Crowder and Temple both are using the existing model in a lot of ways. So it's a little hypocritical for them to point the finger at the Daily Wire and say, they're a bunch of corporatists and we're, you know, we're countercultural, but not them. They're, they're with the culture, even though they tell you they're not. Because, But in, in all honesty, they're both a little bit more cultural than they would like you to believe. Nonetheless, uh, the first story I want to jump in today is one that I think is is perhaps countercultural in an age where it's so hard to have logical and coherent conversations, especially on social media. Um, and so I want to talk about how we can truly impact, compel people who vehemently disagree with us, but are making decisions that are very destructive to society, to themselves on an individual basis, and to, um, and to the truth as a whole, which ultimately is the big thing at the end of the day, so that we don't make this personal, we need to make sure that what we're standing for is standing for the truth. And so a society bent on destroying truth and rejecting truth and running off the cliff like Thelma and Louise, um, it needs compelling people to step in and to really make a difference. And I really do believe that one of the ways that we can do that is through rhetoric. Now, Aristotle wrote very prolifically on this subject, and, and he wrote about how to convince people with words, specifically people who disagree with you. Now, I don't know if you're like me and you're not an argumentative SOB, but I think this is a tactic that no matter who you are, you could use in life. How do you convince people with speech? Because you can use this in business. You can use this at church. You can use this in your marriage. How do you speak to somebody in such a way that they understand what you're trying to say and that they see your point and that they don't get merely emotionally in, involved and fight you from that perspective? But how do you effectively have conversations? Communication is the seedbed of basically everything in life. And so Aristotle thousands of years ago, was giving us some pro tips in how to have convincing rhetorical discussions with people. And he said, a good convincing argument needs three things. One, it needs logos, which is an appeal to the audience's reason. Two, it, it needs ethos, which is an appeal to the speaker's status or authority. So, so how do you come off as an authoritative speaker? We'll talk about that. And then the, the third thing is this, is is it needs pathos. It does need an appeal to emotion. You need to be emotionally involved in the subject so that you can feel the truth and not just know the truth. You, you, you need to have it here and here, in other words. So, so it has logos, pathos, and ethos. And so in our three stories, we're going to talk about that today. So our first story, we're going to look at logos. And logos is kind of the rational side of an argument. How do you create an argument that appeals to the sense of reason and logic and coherence that most people have? Now, I'll be the first to admit that you're going to find that there's a lot of people who do not want to make rational arguments today. They want to accuse you of having male privilege, being cisgender, uh, being white-centric, which is just simply a tactic to try to dismiss conversation rather than to enter into conversation. So you're going to have to weigh whether or not the person you're speaking to actually really wants to have 
a mindful, thoughtful dialogue with you and whether or not they don't, because the Bible even talks about this, like don't enter into a conversation with a fool and a fool is a person who's not willing to listen or else you become a fool because why would you speak to somebody who you know is not going to listen? So the point is you'll have to decide who to speak to, uh, but but I can help you with, with the how. And, and one of the hows is perfectly on display in an Oxford Union debate with a guy named Constantine or Constantin Kissin however you pronounce his name, but nonetheless, he did a fantastic job of doing some really great rhetorical um, arguments, especially in terms of Logos. Among other things, I would encourage you to watch the whole thing. I'll link it down below so that you can watch it. But for now, I'll show you a couple of clips and show you how he uses Logos effectively in his rhetorical monologue. So here's just a little bit of that. Reason, the main reason now that I have left to be uh, in support of the motion is that I am so tired of talking about woke culture. That's why it's gone too far more than anything else. And I thank the other speakers for making the points for me because it means I don't have to reiterate the point that no, no, free speech is not some right-wing reframing of whatever. It's the foundation of Western civilization upon this civilization is built and the Enlightenment values that led to it. Now, the first thing that I see that he does really, really well is that he identifies an issue that is the is the is of the utmost importance. He's being a little bit funny here uh, because apparently this guy's a comedian, but he also says something that I think is relatively important. He helps us understand that undermining free speech is a real issue in the midst of them having a free speech debate. So I think that's really, really key. And in order to make sure that your free, free speech is effective, then, um, then you should do what Constantine here says. Uh, uh, reject the kind of movements that want to resist free speech and want to resist talking about things and want to keep you silent because your voice matters. And again, you don't want to realize that speaking and free speech matters uh, only too late when it's, when it's already gone. This is a problem that I certainly find in the conservative movement and the Christian movement as well, is that we think, hey, don't spark outrage. Don't, don't make a big deal about this thing. You know, let's, let's just love people is what we say. But the, the reality is, is that loving people also means telling the truth. And you cannot do that without free speech. So, so speech really, really matters. So hopefully I've underscored that enough for us to move on to just say, all right, if free speech does matter, then how can we use it effectively? So here's some great arguments that serve as the backbone for what Logos really looks like in a good rhetorical debate. So here's that. I want to talk to those of you who are woke and who are open to rational argument. A small minority, I accept. <laughs> because one of the tenets of wokeness is, of course, that your feelings matter more than the truth. But I believe in you. I believe there are those of you here who are woke, who are open to rational argument, so let me make one. We are told that your generation cares more than any other about one issue in particular, and that issue is climate change. We're told that many of you suffer from climate anxiety. You wish to save the planet. And for tonight, and tonight only, I will join you. I will join you in worshiping at the feet of St. Greta of climate change. 
Okay, so here's a great tip. Find agreement, if at all possible, at the very beginning of a conversation. So when he's talking about, St. Greta, he's talking about Greta Thunberg. And of course, we, um, we don't want to be scolded. So in order to make sure we're in her good graces, uh, he, he admits something willingly that I think is an important thing to suggest, um, that climate change exists. Now, what do we do about it? Okay, so already he's, he's giving in to a premise that he knows his opposition holds, climate change exists. Now, but he's also doing something else. He's he's finding agreement, but he's not doing so artificially. He still has a backbone. He's still going to stand up for some basic truths that are vitally important, as we'll see here in a moment, especially. But but he but he's also willing to find agreement. So find agreement. Don't do so in an artificial way. That's the point here. All right. Now he's about to find agreement, so that then he can therefore pr- provide a prescription based upon facts. So here's some of those facts. <laughs> Let us all accept right here, right now, that we are living through a climate emergency and our stocks of polar bears are running extremely low. I join you in this view. I truly do. Now, what are we to do about this huge problem facing humanity? What can we in Britain do? We can only do one thing. You know why? This country is responsible for 2% of global carbon emissions, which means that if Britain was to sink into the sea right now, it would make absolutely no difference to the issue of climate change. You know why? Because the future of the climate is going to be decided in Asia and in Latin America. Okay, so this is great right here. The UK is only responsible for 2% of carbon emissions in the whole world. So in other words, he's going to get us over to the third world here in just a moment and tell us if we're really going to actually impact the, the, the globe and we're going to change the climate, if we're going to reduce our carbon emissions, it cannot be the UK just merely hindering everybody in the UK from progressing with, with life when really the greatest carbon emitters are people in the third world who desperately need help and don't need to be hindered by green policies. In other words, you cannot create a green policy that is going to destroy people who are already battling extreme poverty. So in other words, your policies have to make sense if you're gonna fight climate change. And how does it make sense to to rigidly restrict somebody who was responsible for only 2% of carbon emissions. And so the, uh, the fact that he knows that means that he's researched, he knows his stuff, and he's willing to display facts. And here's the way that you can certainly help with a m- argument that is likely to get emotional. Provide facts. Uh, it, it, it's not a stopgap for it entirely, but it is certainly a great problem solver for conversations of this kind of nature, because climate change is one that really gets people up in arms. Um, It's a very emotional subject, especially for those like AOC who think the world is going to end in five minutes from now. So the point is, is that you have to be willing to use facts so that you can truly make your argument meaningful and poignant. All right. And so he'll give us a little bit more of that here in this clip. It's going to be decided by poor people in Asia and Latin America who don't care about saving the planet. You know why? Because they're poor. Because they're poor. I come from Russia, which is not a poor country. It's a middle-income country. 20% of households in Russia do not have an indoor toilet. What they have is an outdoor toilet. And I don't mean one of those nice portaloos that we get here. I don't even mean a Glastonbury portaloo. I mean a wooden shack 
with a hole in the ground, the hole's a collected fermented memory of the last 10,000 visits. <laughs> How many of you are going to go home tonight and say, let's rip out our bathroom and erect a Siberian house in the back garden? <laughs> and if you're not, why should they? 120 million people in China do not have enough food. I don't mean that they don't get dessert. I mean they suffer from malnutrition. That means that their immune system is breaking down because they don't have enough food. You're not going to get them to stay poor. Okay, so I've already kind of discussed this, that if you're going to create a policy that is meaningful and actually substantive, then what it needs to take into account is the people who will be most affected by the policy. So you can tell people in the UK or even in America who I believe is, who our carbon emission here in America is about 1.5% of total carbon emissions on an annualized basis, and it's 2% in the UK. I think that's the correct figures there. But one way or the other, the point is, is that if you get North America and you get the UK to reduce their carbon emissions to zero, you still got basically 97% of carbon emissions coming from other places in the vast majority of the third world. So we've talked about this already. So the point is, is that we need reasonable mitigation. We need policies and, and thoughtfulness that, that takes into account human ingenuity. I mean, can, can we just stop it with the world is going to end in 10 days? I, I hear a lot of, you know, canceling of Christian preachers who tell us that the world will be over. And then when it's not, we say, well, I didn't mean that actual date that I said. I just meant that that's the beginning of when it will end, but then it will end in 20 years. And of course, when that doesn't happen, you know, we call these people false prophets. And that's what we need to do with people like Al Gore and other people like, uh, like Tillich. So, when, when we hear this kind of apocalyptic climate change nonsense that doesn't take into account the, the mitigation of people to be able to change their habits or also to just create things in the future as population increases, so does human capacity for ingenuity, to create things that will help us mitigate in the future. So create a reasonable argument to, to insert into the debate, a thoughtful, fact-based argument. And then also doesn't hurt to also be funny like this. About 15 months ago, my wife got pregnant. Not me, because we're old school. <laughs> All right, so our second story today is one that I think really hits close to home to me because it, it undermines something we hear so very often, and it's in the realm of emotion. Kind of, We've already talked about how quickly arguments can get emotional when they're on super, like charged topics that are really, really super kind of controversial. And so here we're going to look at the conversation of abortion and the pro-life movement and how we can effectively do something that Aristotle uh, coined as pathos. And what he meant by that is that we need to be able to have appeals to emotion, to make emotional arguments that are truly effective. And this just happened in the March for Life. I wanted to find a way to talk about the March for Life uh, because it's such an important thing that happens each year, and the mainstream media will not cover it at all. It's the biggest march um, and uh, ex example of activism in the United States each year, and it gets no love whatsoever from the media because it's about defending babies. And if there's anything the left hates today, it is babies. So um, here at the March for Life, one man got up and shared his story about how his mother at 14 years old was raped and 
how she um, could have aborted him, but then rather decided to go ahead and have him and how thankful he is that she did. So here's his heartwarming story. In the summer of 1970, a 14-year-old girl was raped at a 4th of July party. Nine months later, she gave birth to me. I was given up for adoption, was raised by a Christian family. When my dad uh, had, a, had a policy when we were kids that we could take him aside and ask him what a word meant if we didn't know what it meant. I heard abortion mentioned in school when I was in elementary school by a high schooler and I didn't know what it meant. And the night he explained it to me, I didn't hardly sleep. Because I grew up on a farm where we did everything we could to save every single animal born on that farm. And to know that people were killing their children because they were inconvenient horrified me. And from that day on, I was a pro-lifer. And then in 2002, working on a campaign, I, I built this podium right here. And it's not anything great. It's something I threw together on a Saturday. My brother did the welding for me on the metal. But on June 24th of this year, the end of Roe was announced from a podium of a product of rape that the other side says should not exist. The circumstances of my conception do not determine my worth as a human being. As you watch that, that right there is such a great example of winsomeness. He's um, talking about something incredibly controversial, but he's using a personal story that truly helps offset the, the difficulty some people have with the subject, but also helps them stare in the face the reality of what, what they're actually saying. So... So he's making people on the left who believe that abortion is great for women and even great for babies because, you know, you don't want to grow up in a, in a setting where a woman has to have a baby that she doesn't want, do you? Oh, you mean like a 14-year-old that was raped and then decided to go ahead and have that baby and here is that man standing before us right now. So it forces the opposition to stare their argument in the face. So are we really supposed to look at this grown man and say that he should have been aborted just because he was the product of, of rape? And of course, the emotional side of the argument for the pro-choice community is always this. You're going to tell me a 14-year-old should be forced to have a baby? A 14-year-old can't take care of herself, much less take care of a baby. How inhumane and evil are you, bunch of pro-life Christians believing that a 14-year-old should have to look at that baby in the face? every single day of her life that was a product of rape and be reminded of her rapist. How dare you? Of course, high emotional argument. Well, let's look at that, uh, that argument dead on in the face. You certainly have a right to be outraged by a rape, of course, who wouldn't be in, in the first place. But the real problem here is that the baby that's in that woman's womb is not the rapist and doesn't deserve to reap the punishment for a crime that it had nothing to do with. That beautiful little baby that will one day be an adult man that will be able to address the horrors of rape but the importance of life is a child that should be protected. Now, there's all sorts of things that you can do, like you can uh, put that baby up for adoption, you can Make sure that you you take care of that baby in the best way possible and make sure that it doesn't grow up to be anything like its its father. You can nurture and love that child. 
but killing it shouldn't be on the table, just not one of those options. So what we want to try to do as much as possible in these kind of things is be as winsome as possible, share personal stories and share the, the, the necessity of these kind of things, but do so in a way that appeals to the better nature of people. Now, I have to tell you, the left is really good at doing this. They're great at extortion. They're great at trying to manipulate people's emotions, and they understand emotional appeals. That's why they do things like call people homophobic, and they call people transphobic, and they, uh, they've got a phobia for everything. Unless you want to speak negatively and judgmentally about Christians, then that's just called... Um, that's called truth, I suppose, to the leftist, but but there's a phobia for everything because what they want to do is they want to emotionally blackmail you into silence. So they understand the power of emotion, and I'm not saying we do the same thing, but I am saying that we use emotion to our advantage like they are so good at, at doing. So the left uses extortion, and all I'm saying is this, is that we should use morality. We should make people who make immoral arguments stare their immorality in the face. They should feel immoral for the positions that they hold when they're done speaking with you because you've been able to, to speak to them in a way that is emotional in nature. And then let's finally go to the third story, which is, uh, it takes us to the principle of ethos. So ethos essentially kind of is this idea that it's not what you do, it's how you do it. So while you want to be emotional and you want to be rational and reasonable and logical, you also want to have a great amount of, of credibility when you speak to people. So how do you come off as a credible source of information to people when you're speaking to them? And perhaps the best way to do this is just to simply be honest, to be real, you know, be informed, uh, speak emotionally and passionately about the subject, but be incredibly honest about what you believe in and what you think. Because we get in the habit of kind of tiptoeing around issues, thinking that that will help our case, when actually people see right through it and they can tell a disingenuous argument whenever, whenever it comes up, which brings us to this commercial campaign called He Gets Us. Maybe you've seen this. I just recently saw one of their commercials about the death penalty and how much Jesus would have hated the death penalty and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so this is a a Christian campaign of sorts, a kind of commercialized Christian campaign to try to reintroduce a post-Christian world to the teachings and the person of Jesus. So it's a multi-million dollar campaign that supposedly reintroduces Jesus and the Bible by showing a Jesus who was just like you. That's where the he gets us thing comes into play. So this $100 media campaign is attempting to attract people who are skeptical about Christianity by changing Jesus to fit a modern narrative with things things like calling Jesus homeless and the bullied son of a teenage mother. So in other words, it does what is worst about Christianity. It panders in such an inauthentic way and changes Jesus to try to meet the person you're speaking to. So let me be really clear that one of the things I cover on the show a lot is a post-Christian nation and what we can do about that. But when I say post-Christian, I don't merely mean unbeliever. I don't mean agnostic and atheist. I also mean a post-Christian Christian version of Christianity that is based upon a lie, which looks a little bit like these videos. A young mother had a son, a kind-hearted boy who always tried to do what's right. As he grew older, he worried about others more than himself. Whenever he saw anyone suffering, he tried to heal and comfort them, but more people became sick 
Disease ravished the land. People were quarantined, isolated. Many didn't survive. It became too much, and he had to isolate himself. He cried as he thought about all the unbearable things the people were going through. The mental anguish racked him with sorrow, but it was his cross to bear. I'm sorry, these, those, those things are just so deeply annoying to me. And, and here's why, um, a couple reasons. We're trying to be like him, not trying to make him like us. See, this whole idea is flawed, that, that if we can get Jesus just to sympathize with us, then he'll be more likely to be our savior, or we're more likely to believe in him if we can just get somebody to understand where we're coming from. This idea that, that human sympathy is the greatest kind of the greatest kind of tool that we have as Christians is is just fully flawed. I'll talk about this in a moment when I talk about real love. But but because a surefire way to get Jesus totally wrong on your spiritual journey is to make him like you, I think we should resist this kind of stuff. This is the threat of secularism, not merely that atheism and agnosticism rise in number, but that the secular way of understanding society begins to manipulate the way that we understand spiritual truth. And the repercussions of this is a false Jesus. It is the major religion in America today, I would say, is idolatry among people who claim to be Christians and don't, that they really truly want to worship themselves at the end of the day, and you don't have to help people do that. The other most important thing here is that you don't lie to people if you want to convince them of the truth. Again, use logos, use pathos, but the way that you do it is you tell the truth. Tell it in a winsome way. Tell it with personal anecdotes. Tell it with as much facts as possible, but tell the truth. Be honest. Don't fall for the lie of the modern left today, which is this, that, that we don't want to make people think that we're too judgy or too exclusive. You know, don't tell people that Jesus is the only way. Just avoid that at all costs because you want people to like you. If they don't like you, they can't understand the truths that are coming out of your mouth. This is mere sympathetic gobbledygook. It doesn't mean make people hate you, but it also doesn't mean that you're changing the truth to meet the person contextualize it where you can, but don't infringe upon the truth and change Jesus in the process or whatever the subject of conversation may be. In other words, I would tell you this, people need to feel pressure to change, especially if they don't have God in their life. This is a teaching that we see in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter three, God says that because Pharaoh will not let my people go, and this is the Hebrews who are in slavery at the time, he says, they're not going to, they're going to be not going to be let go by Pharaoh. So what I have to do is I have to compel him to let them go. And so he sends Moses and he sends 10 plagues. So Moses is kind of the mediator for these plagues, but, but, but he also sends Moses to speak to Pharaoh on a regular basis to warn him about his actions. And this is something that especially Christians, because we are so humanly sympathetic, but not Christianly benevolent, that we get wrong. We don't understand the power of compulsion or the power of pressure or the power of people feeling the repercussions of what they are doing. 
for people without a conscience, for people without God. That is the only way that they will change. They need to feel the pain of what they are doing. And I'm not talking about physical pain. I'm talking about things like this. This is why we don't celebrate or go to businesses, give our money to them, and in a, in a sense, celebrate them. We don't go to businesses that affirm the things that we don't stand for or that disagree fundamentally with our values. We don't give money to businesses that hate us, in other words. We choose consciously to make sure that those companies know that as long as they stand for this, we will not be participating in anything that they do. And that knowledge, although they may blow it off once, they may blow it off twice, but if a third person does it, they start to think to themselves, boy, this is really, really bad for the bottom line. In other words, there needs to be ways in which we compel people to really adopt the truth. Now, obviously, we need to be honest, but now I'm talking about something far, far different and ultimately something that is really the end cap, the, the summary of the show today, which is this is that if we really want to see change in the world, if we recognize that change is desperately necessary because kids are marching into gender clinics and fundamentally altering their, their life in a physical manner that they may never ever be able to recover from, and, and if we see that, that there are kids who are suffering the consequences for our lack of inactivity, um, our lack of standing up for the things that truly matter, if we realize that we have a responsibility to stop that, then what we need to do is we need to adopt the policy of doing something and being compelling and really displaying real love, real compassion, which is standing for the truth. Be gentle, but, but tell the truth and tell it convincingly, and train yourself to do it as much as possible. Even if it means you dedicate yourself to these three things that we've talked about today, and you say, I'm going to be more logical, I'm going to be more wins winsome, I'm going to be uh, more honest in the way that I approach these things. But this is what real love looks like. And if we're ever truly going to impact society, we have to change this understanding that love just means making people feel good, rather than love means telling people the truth. This is something that uh, is called rational compassion. It's the kind of compassion that just pats people on the back and lets them go on their way into destruction is not real love. Real love is telling the truth as gently as possible. If you agree with me, that moderns have not figured out how to actually derive joy from life, and this is why they are so suicidal in so many of their institutions and in the ideas that they're coming up with today, and, and if you perhaps believe that one of the reasons or one of the curatives for that might be stopping the rebellion that we see in modernity against religion, then the greatest act of love that you can possibly partake in is wake up from your slumber, stand up, and tell the truth. A person who tells the truth in this society today is a person who is participating in an unbridled, unparalleled act of real compassion. Silence is not an option when you know the truth and you need to tell it. So tell it well and tell it as quickly as you can. And if that's something that you plan on doing, I would love to hear how you're doing it down in the comments section below. But most importantly, take your best step of love toward the channel and make sure to like, share, and subscribe and go with God.